So I made a piece uh, out of plexiglass and uh, I slid up in his cell. <clears throat> I said, hey, Terry, these kids think they can tell them how to live in here. And if if they keep pushing the line, I'm gonna kill one of them. And I slid that piece out of my, I had it up in my sleeve of my jacket and I slid it out. I was in his cell, you know, cell door during the unlock. He just, his eyes got real big. And, Cause he knew me from the eighties, you know, and, and uh, he just kind of stepped back and he goes, well, I, I hope you don't have to use that. I said, you know, it's up to them. My friend was a clerk and we had a cop. She was pretty cool. So he went in and he told her, hey, check this out. I want to check my homeboy's uh, balance. You know, your money's on the computer too. And so he told her, I want to see if my homeboy's got any money so he can go to the store. So she pulled the guy's file up on the computer while he's looking at the computer to check his funds. And there's his shit right there. If you have a funny crime in California, they put an R on your jacket. It's an R, restricted, you know, R. And he came out and told me that dude's got a big ass R on his jacket. And there it is there, you know. I told them guys, hey man, he's got this guy in the yard because he's buying you dope. And uh, if you don't get rid of them, I'm gonna get rid of them. And when I go to the hole, I'm gonna let them guys in the hole know you got some sex offender running around the yard because he's buying you dope. But here comes some lame on the yard they just don't like. They will smut him and have him removed, but they got this guy in the yard because he's got a little money, he's buying them dope, they're extorting him. Uh, later that day in the day room, they jumped on him and uh, you know, building got gassed up and whatever, they got rid of him. but. I had to force that issue to get that guy taken off the yard. So we've got part two with Mitch Smiley, Hard Intentions YouTube channel. Please check it out. Link is in the description box below this video. Mitch ended up serving 38 years in the yeah. California state prison system, a hell of a long time. It was a stretch. In part one, we got halfway through that stretch. Uh, we talked about his case. There was a fight. It was kind of a murder conspiracy thing. And he got sent down for that. So inside, he is, you know, surrounded by gang members. This is back in what 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 year? How, what year were you sent down? And halfway through it, what year are we in? Nineteen seventy nine. I got arrested. Uh, about halfway through would be you know two thousand. Uh, well, actually, around ninety nineteen ninety eight or so would be about halfway. So it, it, it's just. From the other guys we've interviewed about those periods of time, the 70s and the 80s in California prison, yeah. it's it, you've got the black gang, haven't you? You've got the different Mexican gangs. You've got the Aryan Brotherhood. You've got the bikers. So you're yeah. navigating that system, and there's all kinds of mayhem going on around you. Yeah, but, I mean, it was just, uh, it, it was, it was, you know, violence was, I don't know, like if you – you know, guys are afraid. I, I think a lot of it just uh, guys are afraid that, like, if you're involved with illegal activity in prison or <clears throat> anything like, if you get in an argument with somebody, you know, you you have to live there, and it's a it's a controlled environment. I mean, you know, you're you were did some time, so 
It's like uh, people are afraid their reputation might get to be, uh, no one wants to be known as a weak person in there because, you know, then guys think they can take advantage of you. So, yeah, it it's a stigma you don't want. So guys are quick to go to violence. Uh, guys the, don't want to. The, the opposite of that is if, if you act too tough, people are going to test you, aren't they, and call you out? Yeah, you know, if you put yourself out there like you're the toughest guy in the block, I mean, that's going to be a problem too, you know. And and also, you know, really, um, <clears throat> guys that put themselves out there like they're, you know, tough guy, killer, whatever aura or a persona, you know. I mean, nobody wants to be around that kind of person either. I mean, um, you don't want to associate with someone that's going to get you in a wreck, you know. Did you ever see anyone who was acting too tough get dealt with? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, guys that actually guys that uh, put their mouth out there like they're tough, they get in a wreck. You know, it's like uh, you know, if the guys stand around and say, say there's somebody on the yard, it's you know, no good for whatever reason, and the the guy that's the most verbal about you know that guy should be this and that guy should get beat down or that somebody should stab that dude or you know i've seen guys uh you know put a knife in their hand and make them go do it i remember when i was in new folsom there was this guy i think he was from the south and he was like yeah i got six life sentences and you know i'm this and i'm that and and so uh some guys put a knife in his hand and say all right all right you know go handle this and uh and I remember we're on the weight pile. This is on B facility, you know, and, and uh, the weight pile, the yard kind of slopes down, you know, and the program office was down and from the weight pile. We're on the weight pile, and this guy told me to check it out. And I go, what's up? And he, <laughs> I think this guy's checking in. <laughs> sure enough, he, he walked over to the program office with that knife and was never to be seen again, you know. If a guy points at another guy and says, you know, he's got bad charges or anything like that, does that that person have to show paperwork before any action is taken? I mean, if the guy's smutting somebody um, because you don't like him and he has enough uh, guys following him, I mean, that was a classic, you know, back in the day, you know, somebody would get stabbed and, and, they, and they'd be like, well, why'd they stab that guy? Oh, he was a rat or whatever they, that was a classic and, and you know uh a lot of times the guy wasn't a rat he just smut they put on him so they could get him off the yard and get him stabbed or whatever or maybe he owed somebody some money and was a little late paying and they wanted to prove a point you know so they would just say oh he was a rat you know or, um you know smut it, it if a person has a little bit of juice on the yard they you know they you can smut somebody and get them removed you know um <clears throat> once the uh, prison gangs were locked up you know 86 around there they locked up all the prison gangs in the shoe and they just let them out um right before i got they were locked up in there for like 30 years man in the hole so so when you say they locked up the prison gangs do you mean the gang leaders no all of them yeah um what california did is anybody that was in a prison gang they locked them up in the hole uh security housing unit and they stayed there for like 30 years and so it got there's only so many gang members you know so what they did was um they would say all right all the gang members are locked up and they had this big shoe unit you know corcoran pelican bay and 
attached me to at one point. So there's only so many gang members, right? Prison gang members. So um, with the whites, anyway, they would say, uh, oh, you're a skinhead or you're a, a different group or whatever. And they would start locking them up. And then they would say, oh, well, you know, you you exhibited. It's like if you check someone's paperwork, it got down to this uh, <clears throat> area. That's predatory behavior. And they would give you an indeterminate shoe term. So if you're a regular dude and you commit an offense in prison, like say you stabbed someone, you could get a shoe term for like, you know, two years or whatever, three years, and then you're out of the shoe. But if you uh, are a gang member or if you exhibit predatory behavior, they give you an indeterminate shoe term. I mean, you're in the shoe forever until they decide to let you out, which was, you know. So if you ask your Sally what his charges are, could that be classified as predatory behavior? Yeah, well, you know, if you, you know, um, uh, back in the day, nobody really checked paperwork. Like I said, the clerks did all the stuff when you came in, but they did away with that. So I would say, you know, people knew me. I never really got asked for my paperwork because I've done so much time. But, um, yeah, you say, hey, you know, you got paperwork. I'd show people my paperwork. They'd show me theirs, whatever. But if you go in a cell with somebody or if somebody's on a yard and you're like, hey, uh, I want to see your paperwork. Um, you know, and, and they don't, and it's bad. Maybe they'll give you a, a line of shit about, you know, I lost my, the big joke was I lost my paperwork in a cell flood, you know, <laughs> you know? Um, then they go tell on you, uh, then you get locked up for predatory behavior. And so, and then like with the Hispanics, uh, last time I was in the hole in San Quentin, San Quentin's in Northern, mostly Northern, uh, Chicano Mexicans go through there. They were locking them dudes up. I was in the hole and, and I would chat with some of them. Uh, dude, they were locking them guys up and giving them shoot terms for nothing. And so my theory was the more guys they locked up, uh, the more guys they could get to flip, you know. So you, you put some guy in the shoe and say, oh, you're classified, you're validated gang member now for whatever reason. We're going to give you a shoot term. <clears throat> well, ha over half them guys are going to flip. They're going to go to S&Y yards. They're going to be like, I'm not a gang member. I went out of here. Well, the only way out is to go to an S&Y yard, you know, which is like PC. Is that called debriefing or something? Yeah, if you're a gang member to get out like that, you have to debrief, you know. But um, what if you're really not a gang member and you just got, you you know, they put you in a cell with somebody or you got caught passing a kite or you got whatever, you know, you've gotten a fight over personal thing but then they say well you did that because you're a gang member and, you know so there's really nothing to debrief on and I think staff had an agenda to get as many because once you go to an SNY yard you can't really go back to a mainline but well now they're mixing them but um, so at one point I think the SNYs had like 70% of the prison population you know did they use the tattoos to identify the gang members uh, you know, I mean, that's up to the individual, you know. Yeah, yeah, they'll they'll say, oh, you got a tattoo of a, you know, a whatever, some symbol that, you know, like, you know, like, say you're Mexican, right? You're Southern Mexican, Northern Mexican, whatever. Uh, you like to tattoo some of your, your culture, your ethnic background, you know, on you. They would say, uh, oh, well, that tattoo, that's uh, your gang member. You know, really, the guy's just a, Mexican descent wants to tattoo some of his culture on him or 
You know what I mean? It's in, but the staff would use that to uh, to identify him as a gang member and validate him and get him in the hole. Uh, you know, the hole is only there's only so many guys that really need to be in the hole. You know, so that that's their agenda, man. Was just to create uh, chaos and and uh, misinformation and just you know that the staff have a job just like the inmates have a job and the gangs have a job. And, they have a job too, and and the security squad, <clears throat> we call them the goon squad, uh, uh, cert, SNI search and investigation. You know that's their their uh, their game. You know, is to identify people as gang members. I, I had a bunch of photographs of guys that I tattooed on, and some of them were by clubs. Uh, one of them became a prison gang member and went to death row. Uh, so I had photographs of these guys in my photo album, but it was the tattoos that I did on them because I'm a tattoo guy. The goon squad hit my cell. This is later on. I was in level two San Quentin, you know, and they took my photo album and they called me over to, to the uh, goon squad office. And like, uh, they were trying to say I was a gang member. I'm like, well, you know, or a motorcycle club member or whatever. And I'm like, I go, look, dude, there's guys in there from different motorcycle clubs. And the reason I have those photographs is because I did those tattoos, you know, and they're like, yeah, okay. I mean, if it was all one group of people, maybe, but, you know, it was different groups of people and, you know, but that's their game, you know, staff have a game. And, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine and he's got friends that are in there. He communicates with, uh, and, and, you know, that he said some captain told him uh, over in Delano said, uh, CDC is a big homie now. You know, but, you know, they they got you know, they have an agenda, and their agenda is you know, they're cops. They go to work every day in a prison, and they're surrounded by guys who don't leave that prison every day. And if you work in a prison, you know, you, you want to. It's like uh, you want to go to work and be safe and finish your shift and go home. And so, you know, they're always up on information. They're always recruiting guys to rat. They're always just a constant flow. Everything's in flux all the time. You know, it's, it's weird, man. So halfway through your sentence then, which prison were you in? I think I was in Lancaster prison. Uh, and, you know, I, I told you, like, when I was in Corcoran, I flushed a quarter ounce of crank down the toilet because I, I was pretty much done with that shit. And, <clears throat> you know, I, it was great because I was out of the mix. Um, and, you know, things started changing, you know, it's like, uh, I didn't really realize what was going on in the street. Cause I'd been in prison, you know, almost 20 years at that point, you know, you know, 17, 18 years. So drugs were changing on the street and the mentality of drug use was changing on the street for me when I was out and mostly, uh, you know, up about that point in my sentence, like I said, it was about partying and making money. And now, you know, the drugs that used to be manufactured in California, like crank, where it's being manufactured in Mexico and, you know, it was different. And the the mentality behind drug use was just, uh, that was the lifestyle using drugs. That was, it was weird, man. Uh, it came out with the three strikes law in California, <clears throat> started giving life sentences to guys for stealing pizza and shoplifting Levi's and, 
you know, that bumped the prison population up to almost 180,000 people. We had the third biggest prison population in the world. Um, I think they said China was number one. The United States as a whole was number two and then California. So, I mean, it was, it was you know, they were sending guys to prison, man, that were, you know, they might have deserved to do two or three years at best. And then now they had life sentences and they're in level fours. So it was, it was just a drug culture beyond, you know, it was just their whole life was just to use drugs. And I, I, I couldn't relate. So how was that new type of prisoner integrating then with the older established prisoners? <clears throat> well, you know, the older established prisoners started getting less and less and less. And these new guys became more and more and more, but we would just sit around, you know, like, um, I was in Lancaster. We started having riots of whites against the Southsiders. And traditionally, you know, we whites usually got along with the Southsiders. And there was this older cat who's my neighbor. I was out, I worked in arts and correction. So I was out on break, you know, and he was out there. I go, hey, I forgot his name. I'm like, hey, bro, check this out. What's going on? He's like, what do you mean? I go, why are you guys jumping on us? You know, it's not supposed to be this way. And he's like, dude. He was an older cat too, you know. He just is like, dude, it's you know, it's a new day, you know. He didn't like it either, you know. But it's like, what do you do, you know? Was there a reason that that decision was made? Well, you know, that was uh, it was mostly over drugs, you know. Guys weren't paying their drug debts, but uh, you know, the first riot they had there on that yard was like 120 to 11, you know. 120 versus 11 people. Yeah, whites were severely outnumbered. Where were you? Where were you on that day? That day I was at work. I was in arts and corrections. The second riot they had while I was out on the yard, I had 13 dudes jump on me. You know, 13 dudes. Take take us through that, please, Mitch. Well, you know, I I I went out to the yard. You know, I seen like some weird shit. Like the whites had a table right outside education. My shop was inside education. So you go out, you go through a fence, and then you're on your yard. And uh, I noticed the cops were sitting at our table, you know, and where the whites sit. And I'm like, what the fuck, you know? So I go out. I had a bag with a hot pot in it. You know, I said, you know, heat up water for coffee and shit at work. So <clears throat> they had a white dude on the yard they called Buck Knife. And he had come from the hole, but he had been on another yard. And, uh, you know, he was a skinhead guy. There was like three or four skinheads in the yard. And uh, so I go up to this, where the white dudes are. I go, what's up with the cops, man? They got our table. They go, yeah, the South Side is just trying to stab a book knife. I think his name was Jimmy or something. I don't know. I go, really? They go, yeah. You know. So I go, all right. I go, so what's up? And they go, well, you know, they're skinheads. They're on their own. I go, what do you mean? Because that's their shit. I said, hey, check this out. Them dudes are white, you know, and if they if they fight, I'm going to get, I'm going to, you know, if they stand up for themselves, I'm going to stand up with them. And uh, they're all looking at me like, you know, I go, you think they're just going to jump on them guys? They're going to jump on all you guys. And I remember there was this white dude, George Luchev. Uh, he was Croatian, I think. Yeah, and but uh, he always worked out with his Southsider all the time. He's a fucking heroin addict, you know. So we start to walk, you know, you go line up in front of your building and go in and I was in building one and he was in building two and this dude's my size. 
And so he's over by his building. I'm walking over there and I see the door open for his building. He's going in. I go, hey, George. Like three times he turns around and goes, see you later. Like, you know, what the fuck, you know? <clears throat> and uh, yeah, fucking coward. So um, I go and stand across the street from my building and there's just like a wall of Southsiders. I was like, oh, fuck, this ain't going to be fun, you know? And, uh, yeah, they, you know, they rushed us. And it's just like a wall of people running at you, you know? I just swung that bag with that hot pot at them back and just started, you know, <laughs> beep, 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 beep. you just got to move. You got to, so I would hit dude in the face two, three times and then go, you know, kind of spin, you know. <clears throat> Riots don't last long, you know, um, but if a riot lasts two, three minutes, five minutes, ten minutes, it's a, it's, it seems like forever, you know. Um, I was just glad they weren't stabbing us, you know. <laughs> How? Why weren't they stabbing you? I don't know. Um, I don't know. <clears throat> but it turns out they wanted that dude off the yard, and uh, um, and uh, I said, well, why don't they just go in the cell heads up with him, you know? And, and they said, well, they already did that. He, I guess. Several of them ran up in his cell in another yard and he beat them all down. You know, he was a tough guy. So they were just like, they told the white dudes, want that guy off the yard. And, you know, I'm not going to run somebody off the yard for another race. It's not money, you know. So we had a riot. Then other times it would be over money. Guys own money, you know. Prison just got fucking stupid and, and white dudes. So after that first riot, <clears throat> You know, I, I went and told the white dudes, uh, while you're on lockdown, you come out for showers. And I told a couple of them youngsters, I go, hey, you guys want to make, you want to stop this from happening? And they go, well, yeah. I said, all right, uh, when we come out, <clears throat> you know, we'll just act like everything's cool for a couple of weeks. And then on a certain day at a certain time, uh, we'll just take off on them and start stabbing them. We can, you know, we, you know, we got to try to kill some of them. And, uh, after that, the shit will stop. And uh, they're all, yeah, yeah, you know, okay, cool, I'm down, you know. And I'm like, all right. You know, because I, I didn't dig it, you know. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so we came out. We're all standing around this little circle out in the yard. And I go, you guys got pieces? And and then they start hemming and hawing. They're like, well, you know, you know, some of us haven't been paying our drug debts and, you know, we kind of had that coming and I go, Hey, check this out, motherfucker. I don't even use drugs. And that, you know, I was younger then. I said, what about that 55 year old dude? They beat the fuck out of it. That guy doesn't use either. And he doesn't have any debt. So <clears throat> I was like, you know, fuck you guys, <laughs> you know? And then uh, that dude, George, that went in the building, he was out there with his homeboy and, and I was kind of shining him on. And, and so when I was going to work, you know, and he's like, Hey man, what's up? I go, I'm just doing my thing, you know? And he goes, man, you know, you've been kind of shining me on. So what's going on? And he goes, I can take it. You know, I'm tell me that, you know, what's really going on. I go, what's really going on is you're a fucking coward, dude. And uh, his homeboy was sitting there like, wow. I go, you fucking ran in the building and left us hanging out there in the yard, you fucking creep. You're a coward, you know. <clears throat> you know, I had already um, quit using, uh, quit selling dope, you know, and shit like that just made me realize, you know, I, I'm on the right track. I'm, you know, 
And uh, on that yard there, I got kind of tight with a Catholic priest. He was from Ireland and uh, old school, big guy, really smart. <clears throat> he was a college professor down in Mexico City for like 25 years. Uh, he worked at MIT for a while. He was a smart guy, and he, but he's from Ireland. Uh, so I got into going to there to the Catholic church and, you know, people that are intelligent, but they can relate their stories to you on a level you can understand, even though they're, you know, their intelligence levels way above mine. I, I find them interesting and fun to converse with, you know, and, uh, <clears throat> he would tell me stories about growing up in Ireland and all that kind of shit, you know, but, uh, I just kind of separated myself more and more and more from the bullshit on the yard. Um, you still got to be there if something's going on, obviously. But um, <clears throat> that's when I made the decision, look, you know, I, I'm going to be in prison. Uh, you know, our governor, Gray Davis, wrote an article in the in the L.A. Times that said, uh, if you're in prison for murder, and technically my case said murder, even though I was an aider and a better by vicarious liability, he said, if you're in prison for murder, you're going to parole in a pine box. So I was like, all right. There it is there. <clears throat> the governor's saying, you know, you're never getting out, right? So I decided, you know, you, you got a couple options. You know, you can uh, hang out on the yard, shoot dope, be involved with violence and stupid shit, going out of the hole, <clears throat> you know, or you can get off big and just do the rest of your time in the shoe. Or you can be on the main line, do my artwork. Uh, you know, I was working in arts and corrections at the time. Uh, I can do my artwork, get a decent music set up. Listen, I like music, right? Art, get some decent food once in a while, have a visit once in a while, just be comfortable and just wait. Just wait it out, you know? I'm either going to die in here or they're going to change and so that became my game plan, you know, and uh, <clears throat> like I said, I had a bunch of points. It took me uh, quite a while to get down to a level three. So I, from Lancaster, um, you know, I went to back to Donovan prison and uh, that prison had also changed. I left there in 96. Now it was just another dump, just like every other prison, you know, they did away with a hobby um you know obviously there were no weights it was just uh same thing go to the yard shoot dope cause problems but now that the gangs were locked up you had guys that were like uh i'm, I'm running the yard all right <clears throat> i'm the shot caller on the yard or a group of guys that were involved with drugs and different shit and thought they were about the shit right they, they would say hey man you know why don't you run the yard and some guy would say, okay, I'm running the yard. And uh, most of the time, that person would be a dope fiend, too, and, and make a bunch of bad calls and uh, run up debts and get that free shot of dope because he's a shot caller. And he's got his nose in everybody's business. Who's using drugs? Um, but most of the time, they're, that's, all, you know, so once in a while, some guy would step up and say, hey, I'm going to run the yard. He's not like uh, my friend Mike from L.A. He, he took the yard there one time and he's not a dope fiend and he didn't make bad calls and he didn't actually like the guys who were doing that kind of shit. But uh, what they would do is be like, uh, <clears throat> they would use somebody up, get them in debt, 
You know, they're all shooting dope on this guy's ticket. And then when he can't pay his bill, the shot caller would send two guys to jump on him. It's called a removal. It would remove him by having two guys jump on him in front of the cops and beat him down. And then the cops go, oh, that's like a message. Oh, they don't want him on the yard. He gets removed off the yard. Then the two guys say, yeah, we put in work. I'm like, dude, this is fucking ridiculous. You know, I was just like, this is way out. Um, <clears throat> you had guys trying to tell other guys how to live. I was like, dude, this is just bullshit, you know. Um, I was a plumber. I got my plumbing job back. Uh, so I could move around the prison pretty freely. Um, I had friends that would come in through the reception yard and I would go see them, you know, homeboys from Dago that were, especially if they're biker type dudes, I would go over their cell, bring them a little coffee and tobacco was outlawed at the time, but I, you know, I'd bring them a couple cigarettes, you know, coffee, whatever. Just be like, you know, so <clears throat> I, you know, I just got more and more disgusted with prison. You know, it just, uh, the, the criminal mentality of I'm going to commit felonies for money is pretty much gone. Um, now it's just, I'm going to commit felonies so I can get loaded, you know? And, uh, it was, it was pretty disgusting to be honest with you. There was no, you know, like they did away with the hobby programs. I had my art supplies, you know, stashed under my bed, but, uh, guys are always like well, what do you care about hobby for i'm like well that's where i make money and they didn't have that whole concept of making money while you're in prison they didn't get it money was to get high that's it and i was just like man this is just bullshit you know <clears throat> and you know I, all the older cats were gone down to level two um so that became my new goal, you know, was to get my points down and get down to level two and go to San Quentin because San Quentin still had a hobby shop and, you know, old school type prison. But, uh, you know, there were a few bumps along the road um, that could have prevented me from going. But uh, what were the I, bumps? Uh, you know, there's a riot here, you know, shit there, different stuff. Uh, I remember, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't had a to have a knife for quite a while, you know, have peace for a while. So, but it got to the point where I made a, uh, there was a dude on the yard, Terry Campbell. And Terry Campbell was uh, gay. Uh, he'd been in prison since the sixties. And he actually had uh, two or three prison murders, you know, because of his, uh, his sexual preference. <laughs> uh, and, but the murders are from the sixties, early seventies, I think. And, but he was on the yard telling these guys he was a dropout from the prison gang, and, but he wasn't a rat. And he, you know, he had now he's got these uh, swastika and lightning bolt tattoos on his calves, and he's got this story that he's concocted that that these murders he got in prison were because he was in the gang, you know, and that's not true. And I knew the real deal, you know. The guy was, uh, you know, <clears throat> he was a homosexual, and he had. And he had, uh, rumor was he had his boyfriend back in the day was black. So, you know, that got him a lot of trouble and it got him a couple of murders over it. But now he's reinvented himself as this, but, and he's also a dope. And so <clears throat> all these kids are thinking he's the shit, you know, he's the man. And I know the truth. So a couple guys who were 
hung around me all the time. I let them know the real story, and they're like, "Wow!" And uh, there's all these tough guys following this guy. They think he's a tough guy, but really, he's you know, I mean, the guy would kill you back in the day, but that doesn't mean you know. <clears throat> so I made a piece uh, out of plexiglass, and uh, I slid up in his cell. <clears throat> I said, "Hey, Terry." These fucking kids think they can tell a motherfucker how to live in here. And if if they keep pushing the line, I'm going to fucking kill one of them. And I slid that piece out of my, I had it up in my sleeve of my jacket. And I slid it out. I was in his cell, you know, cell door during the unlock. He just, his eyes got real big. Because he knew me from the 80s, you know. And, and uh, he just kind of stepped back and he was, well, I, I hope you don't have to use that. I said, you know, it's up to them. And, uh. I don't know what he did, but things kind of, you know, you know, I, like I was on the yard and, uh, you know, I had this expression, white powder, homes, you know, because everybody's like, you know, white power, but they're all slamming dope. So they'd be at a table and I'd walk by and I'd, I'd go like this, you know, white powder, homes, you know, because it really isn't about white power. It's about white powder, you know, it's fucking, you know. But um, I remember there was this black dude named Snoop. He was on the yard. Uh, he was a blood from L.A. And Lancaster, he was in the art class, you know. Uh, I taught him how to paint uh, as part of the art program. And so there he was in Donovan. <clears throat> and all the white dudes went to, a, they would have food sales there about, you know, once a quarter. And uh, I think they had like a barbecue food sale. So all the food would come in styrofoam, you know, plates and all the white dudes are getting laundry carts full of food and the food sale and taking it and giving it to the blacks and giving it to the Mexicans. I was like, wow. So Snoop's like, Hey, you getting that food sale? I go, nah, I'm saving my money for shit. You know? And he's like, you want a plate? I go, sure. Give me a plate of this shit that they got from the white dudes. They're all sitting there eating, spreading. And, uh, you know, so I tell the white dudes, Hey, you get in on that spread. And they're like, what do you mean? I go, uh, yeah, they're all spreading over there. I go, oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry, that's the blacks. You know, they're eating your food. You know, I see clown dudes. That's, I mean, that's where the drug use got. Uh, you know, it's just like no self-respect, no fucking, there's no level of, uh, you know, your identity is just you're a fucking dope fan. And I, I was, you know, I would tell guys, it's embarrassing being in prison now, you know? I just, uh, which just gave me more incentive to stay out of the mix and try to get to a prison where I could just hang out, you know? Uh, yeah, I saw it, man. White boy meetings, dope debts, people getting rolled up. There was even a Russian guy who was sober. I used to play chess with him. And he'd go up to the the, the white gang members and, and the white boys and he'd be like, the dope is sucking your fucking brains out. You don't know what you're doing. It's just your biggest enemy. And he would tell them to their faces and no one else did that. Yeah. So, because there's like a lot of pressure, isn't there? You know, if the majority are doing it, you come along and you, you call them out for it. It's, um, yeah. Yeah, it's quite a situation to see. Well, there was a dude there. He had a fucking, uh, somebody told me, hey, this dude's got a sex crime. This guy had sex with a, an underage girl like 13 14 years old um but the guy's got a lot of money and he's buying these guys weed he's buying them drugs <clears throat> so 
you know, there's no clerks around that can access paperwork anymore. Um, so my friend was a clerk and we had a cop. She was pretty cool. So he went in and he told her, hey, check this out. I want to check my homeboy's uh, balance. You know, your money's on the computer too. And so he told her, I want to see if my homeboy's got any money so he can go to the store. So she pulled the guy's file up on the computer while he's looking at the computer to check his funds. And there's this shit right there. If you have a funny crime in California, they put an R on your jacket. It's an R, restricted, you know, R. And he came out and told me that dude's got a big ass R in his jacket. And there it is there, you know? So I told them guys, Hey man, you, you motherfuckers got this guy in the yard because he's buying you dope. And uh, if you don't get rid of him, I'm going to get rid of him. And when I go to the fucking hole, I'm going to let them guys in the hole know you got some sex offender running around the fucking yard because he's buying you dope. And that's, you know, but here comes some lame on the yard they just don't like. They will smut him and have him removed, but they got this guy in the yard because he's got the money he's buying a dope. They're extorting him. That's bullshit, you know, to me. And so uh, they jumped on <laughs> uh, Later that day in, in the day room, they jumped on him and, uh, you know, Billy got gassed up and whatever. They got rid of him, but I had to force that issue to get that guy taken off the yard. Um. <clears throat> Like like you said, it's the prior, prioritizing the drugs over the code. Right. Drugs mean more than than anything, you know, and it's not like old school guys uh, see drugs as uh, money, party, whatever. But it just became that drugs rule, you know. Had you been, up to this point, had you been stabbed or had anybody tried to stab you? Yeah, I've been stabbed. Uh, I've been shot, you know. What were the stabbings and shootings over? Just uh, personal shit, you know, but uh, that was many years prior, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, that, you're not going to do that much time without getting in the mix at some point or another, you know, like I said, we had riots. And, are are uh, you able to describe those stories? Or is it something you don't want to talk about? You know, I, shit happens, you know. <laughs> gotcha. Shit happens, you know. Uh, but you keep living, you know? And that's another thing I, I don't understand is, uh, you know, with the guys checking in, like all the S&Y guys are checking in um, and then, you know, getting out of prison and coming on YouTube actually. And, and <clears throat> we just had one got killed recently. I had a channel that was S&Y. Really? What happened there? Uh, like I had a channel, Savage, you know, some guy rolled up in a tattoo shop or whatever and shot him. Whoa. Channel, but. You know, he would get on uh, YouTube and fat mob prison gangs and just all kinds of shit, you know, and somebody ended up killing him. But the thing is, like, I, I didn't understand the S&Y thing growing so large either, because if you got a problem with somebody on the main line, why are you checking in? I don't get it, you know. Not everybody gets along with everybody. There's a way to either come to a mutual understanding where we're going to live in the same prison or we're not. And I don't know, they just, <clears throat> they fed right into the, the, the prison and staff the administration's program by, by going that route, you know, and then <clears throat> they started a bunch of uh, S&Y gangs, you know. So uh, from my, my understanding, 
um, SNY, it's sensitive needs yard. That's what the SNY is. It's a, they used to just call it PC. Um, guys are just checking in for whatever reason. Uh, and then the SNY yards created their own gangs. And so now it's to the point where, from what I understand, talking to guys that are in prison, <clears throat> uh, they're still GP. They're saying they're going to start mixing. The staff are kind of tired of it because these guys have formed their own gangs and they're preying on guys that are uh, just want to check in for whatever reason and do their time. So now they're going to say no more special yards. So they're starting to mix general population guys with guys who have checked in with S1 guys. Are you saying that the checked in guys became more than the general population? Yeah, the uh, uh, estimate was like they became 70% of the prison. Wow, wow. See, I don't understand that. Um, you know, I don't get it. What, what would, you know... If you, if you have a problem, like the gang, like some guys, like, you know, obviously a guy that's a prison gang member and he drops out and rats on everybody that he's formally connected with, he's not going to walk the main line, you know. Uh, some of them have, but they didn't rat. Um, <clears throat> when I was in Donovan, they had that guy, Jimmy, he was a dropout, but he wouldn't have rat. He continued to live on the main line the rest of his term, you know. I was reading more about Corker in prison, and it said they tried to do a policy of racial integration, but then they used that to put opposing gang members together to have gladiator fights to the death and shot them if they didn't participate. I don't know about that, because that didn't happen when I was there. Um, the integration thing happened later, but... Uh... So what they, they did was they said, uh, you know, no more. There was a guy they called Purple Passion. He was a big, giant dude, and he was a homosexual. And he was black. He wanted to live with his white boyfriend, whatever. And, uh, you know, there's no interracial living in prison. So he filed a lawsuit, and he won. So the federal court said they had to integrate the prisons. So they came around and tried to force integrate the yards. And... There were a few cases where they tried to put uh, dudes from other races in with white dudes. And, you, you know, you can't do it. You can't live with another race. Um, I did say I've seen Mexican dudes live with white dudes for a short period of time for whatever reason. I've never seen. Uh, you just you can't agree to that. And that's the, the that's the thing, you know, white dudes can't agree to, so you would go to classification every year for your annual, or when you drive up to a prison, they would say, uh, they would ask you, are, are you going to uh, interracial house? And I'd say no. And so um, that did cause some problems. Uh, I don't think, I think staff tried to do it because the federal courts ordered them to. I don't think they were doing it like to, you know, they might have tried to do it in Corcoran to cause guys uh, they didn't like to get in a wreck, but you know, you know, just uh, I know I was never anywhere where they actually tried to enforce it. And uh, they it would be more problems for staff than they wanted, really. Um, and then once again, you got you got to understand uh, the the point of view of staff. Does a staff member really want to cause a problem that could come back to him? So in other words, like if some staff members are like, you're going to go live with this guy. 
and then it causes a problem, somebody gets hurt or dead or whatever, the inmates, the prisoners are going to look at that staff member as a cause of the problem. And then that could uh, potentially lead to a you know, hazardous <laughs> situation for him. So they're not going to push the issue unless they absolutely have to. Your average, that's your average prison guard. So it sounds like then, all right, so halfway through your sentence then, it sounds like the whole culture of the prison has changed. You've yeah. got drugs has just become an epidemic. The gangs now, it's all about the drugs, the the, the shot callers, they're just doing it. So yeah, they can... All the gangs were still in the shoe. All the prison gangs were still locked up. So. But aren't the shot callers, aren't they supposed to be working for the gang members? You know, that's, I don't know. And kicking money, kicking money up top. Yeah, I didn't see that really happening. I mean, it might have happened somewhere up the chain and somewhere, but most of the places I was at, that that wasn't happening, at least not with the whites. It was just, uh, there was no money being made. It was just money being spent, you know. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK, Amazon, US, Amazon company account, US Amazon, UK Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. So as you're going down lower security levels then, is it getting more relaxed in your life? Uh, it should have been, but um, it really wasn't. Level threes are still. I mean, Donovan, they were. Uh, there was some shit where they jumped on cops. It, it was where we had a few riots. Uh, same bullshit, less severity and less frequency. But, um, you know, the saving grace for me at Donovan was I had a job as a plumber, and I could, you know, I had a little eight hour period every day I was at work. And then I go out to the night yard and walk laps and play handball. And <laughs> I got ready to go to board. You know, I had to go to board, um, periodically, you know, pro board. And my counselor calls me in. She's like, you know, I go, Hey, I'm going down to level two. I was blown away. Cause at one point I had 164 points and now I'm going down to level two, which is <laughs> at that time, that's as low as the lifer could go, you know, lowest security I could get to. Hmm. she goes yeah but you're going to the pro board and i said i'm not going and she had just became a counselor you know and she was fairly nice you know and, and i didn't want to you know you don't want to cause problems with your counselor because that's the one that facilitates you know shit you need done but i'm like i'm not going to board and she goes well you got to go to board <laughs> i go i don't got to go to board she goes, oh yeah you have to i said i'm not uh and she's like, we, uh, okay, let me check on this. You know, and next day she's like, Hey, you got to sign these papers. If you don't want to go to board, 
I go, I'm not signing shit. I'm not participating. <laughs> by now, it's just a big charade. It's just a, you know. Um, so I I told her, look, I'm going down to level two. My annual's coming up. And uh, so I ended up signing the refusal for board. And she put me up for transfer to San Quentin, which is where I wanted to go. And I ended up going to San Quentin. Um, big shock there. Uh, they had a building. North Block used to be the hall, so now it's mainline. It holds 840 people and 800 are lifers. Wow. And so now I'm seeing guys that I knew years ago. Um, you know, they became level twos a long time ago because they weren't screw ups. Uh, and uh, they had changed also. They had been living in this luxury level two. I mean, they had boom boxes. They had <laughs> Dickies jackets with Pendleton liners. And they just had, you know, colored clothing still. And I was just like, wow, you know, but they were spoiled. They missed all the changes that happened in prison because they made it to a level two San Quentin. So they were oblivious to what was going on in the rest of the system. You know, I, I went out to the yard and where the weight pile used to be, there's a tennis court now. So the Marin County tennis club on the streets built this tennis court in the prison. So guys are playing tennis. All right, cool. So I go out the yard on a Saturday and there's these women out there playing tennis with prisoners I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> my mind, you know? Um, yeah, it really, it blew my mind. Uh, the warden there was very progressive, and she, uh, I forgot her name. She uh, had outside, they have a thing called a brown card. They're volunteers that could come in the prison pretty much whenever. <clears throat> they had like four or 5,000 of them. They had more brown card holders in that prison than anywhere in the state. I mean, they had people that came to church every Sunday, uh, like the Catholic chapel. Um, they had uh, uh, about 25 people used to come in every Sunday, and they didn't go to church on the street. They went to church at San Quentin. They're volunteers. And that's kind of <clears throat> kind of tripped me out. And so they had guys come in to play basketball, guys coming in for college programs, guys coming in for art programs. It was just, uh, it was a trip. It really was. Um, I didn't really have a lot of interest in the things that were going on, but it did, it created a whole different environment, you know? Um, did you go to the church services? Yeah, I used to go to the Catholic chapel there. Um, <clears throat> but I was also studying with the uh, stuff from the Orthodox church, you know? I'd been since like 2000. So, and now and then I'd have an Orthodox priest come in and see me. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the priest there, he was kind of funny. He ended up leaving. I think he was, uh, yeah, he was a problem. <laughs> but there was a lot of stuff going on there. And then they started changing San Quentin. The warden left. She became the director of CDC. And things, they, we started getting staff coming from these other prisons where the mentality was, you know, screw the inmates. Uh, so there's coming in as lieutenants, captains, associate wardens. They started doing away with stuff. They started, uh, they would come in, you know, you're living in, 
in a prison where everyone's kind of programming. It's like the end of the road. Guys don't think they're ever going to get out. And this is a square. They're going to live out the rest of their life. And then they started changing things. They started search. They would, they would run everyone out to the yard uh, all day long for three or four days straight. And they would just go in and start throwing stuff off the tier. Like they would throw boxes of paperwork off the tier. Guys got court cases going, typewriters, TVs. Uh, it's five tiers high. There would be a pile, like two, three foot deep pile of shit they threw out of people's cells out on the tier. You know, I mean, they just started disrespecting us to the point where um, <clears throat> there was one cop, Miss Beasley, you know, her mom was a, a, an administrator at one point. And uh, I remember seeing her and she told this rookie cop, uh, let's go, this is illegal. And the rookie told her, are you sure? She goes, if they got a problem with it, you go to your union rep. She walked out. She said, what they're doing is illegal. I'm not participating. Wow. So you would think the lower security prison guys programming staff would give them a little more respect, but it, it, it you know, you started getting tops working in there that were, we used to have veterans and guys who were kind of cool and they understood, but you started getting staff members that were correctional officers. They never had a job before. That was their first job. And they grew up in a, in a, they grew up in a, a, a mentality in their family of, uh, you know, criminals or scumbags and, you know, uh, so they think it's their job to come in there and punish you and make your life miserable. They've never worked anywhere else. They have no real world experience. And so that's kind of the mentality of a lot of the newer staff. Uh, prison just started getting shitty, you know. Um, so... You know, I had gotten out of the uh, drugs and all that shit. That was never a problem. I've been clean for quite a while now. But tobacco was illegal. And so uh, I found a route to smuggle tobacco into the prison. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I did that for about a year and uh, I got busted. Um, I had a cell phone. They, I had a nice stash. Um, they hit my cell like five times, never found my phone. Uh, I had a perfect stash. And then one day they came in and they took my, I had a, I also, I wanted a motorcycle, you know, even though I didn't know if I was ever going to get out. So I was selling tobacco for stamps. And what was the profit margin? Quite a bit. Um <laughs> People would sell the stamps on the street for $8 a book. Stamps were $8.80 a book at the time. So I would sell a can of Bugler for 100 books of stamps. Shit. Stamps, would I'd send them out, and they would sell them for $8 a book. So wow. on that. And uh, it was all right for a while. But, you know, when you make money like that in prison, it's kind of hard to stop. And I got carried. I remember one time I had like eight or 900 books of stamps on my bed. I'm thinking, man, how the hell am I going to get these things out of here? Because you're only allowed to have two books of stamps, you know. <clears throat> so um, it's like laund money laundering problems. <laughs> my uh, my celly left. He was a good youngster. And I got a new celly. And uh, 
I thought he was all right. And then I found out later after I got busted, he had problems in another prison that I didn't know about. So I think he might have told on me. Um, they came to my cell. So I had a jewelry box and I had, I would send the stamps out for my family and whatnot, and, you know, help support them. And they could take care of me without being a burden on them also. And, um, but I had, I would save stamps inside this jewelry box I made in the hobby. And, I had uh, about 800 books of stamps in there. And when I got to a certain amount, I was going to send it out and that was going to be money for a motorcycle. You know? oh. And uh, yeah, they run up in my cell. They got that. And uh, I had some stamps in different locations in the prison. And uh, yeah, people told, you know, what's funny about that is that prison had northerners there and I remember this one guy, Mondo, he was from uh, Visalia, I think, Northerner. We went through a program together, you know, substance abuse. Because I'm I'm going to groups and shit, right, still. <clears throat> Mondo was a three-striker, and uh, he was a Northerner, but he was like, you know, I, I don't I don't care. Uh, I remember one time he goes, I don't care how big of a 14 you got tattooed on your neck. You're just another motherfucker to me until you prove otherwise. He was a straight up dude. He was a good dude, but he had made up his mind. Hey, he goes, Hey, I got a daughter. I want to, uh, you know, he wanted to get out and be with his family. And that was the end of his little prison career. So I, I liked him and he knew what I was doing. He goes, Hey Holmes, if you ever needed somebody to hold on to them stamps, just let me know. I go, all right. So one time I gave that dude like, I don't know, 600 books of stamps to hold. And I went back like two weeks later. I go, hey, I need them stamps, and there they were. You know, uh, wow, trustworthy guy. You know, didn't even open the package they were in. Just, you know. But when when they hit your cell and you lost the mother load, that must have hurt. That's yeah, gotta hurt after all that work. You know what else hurt was, uh, um, uh, guys were clamped because I I was ordering. My mentality was, I'm gonna tobacco's not gonna last forever. I want to. I ordered enough art supplies to probably last me 10 or 15 years with some of the money. And guys in the hobby shop were like seeing my orders come in. <laughs> they were like, they were envious. You know, I could see it in their eyes. <clears throat> but uh, so when I got busted, um, all that shit got pilfered. Guys uh, ripped off all my art supplies, my CDs, different shit I had. Guys scoured the places I had my stamp stash. Got the I lost 1,500 books of stamps between the goon squad and guys pilfering shit. And uh, I'm sitting in the hole, and uh, I'm like, man, you know, what the fuck? This one uh, guy was a program administrator. He's like, send him up the high desert. I go, hey, I'm a level two, you know. <laughs> they were mad at me. Um, they, you know. It was pretty simple to smuggle the shit in. I sent it in uh, through the mail, and it was. But uh, I asked my counselor in the hole. I go, "Hey man, how come I can't go back to to North Block?" And he started laughing at me. He goes, "Man, all them guys told on you. They don't want you back out there. <sighs> so they tell on you and pilfer through your shit and take what they want, <sighs> right? Uh, and then you're not coming back because they put you down as an enemy. It's it's just uh that's the way." It, that's the way these guys became that have been in prison all them years. You know, I was like, fuck man. So I got transferred to Soledad, 
level two. And there I saw a lot of my old friends that were level two. And now guys are starting to get out, you know. Guys with life sentences were getting out because of the court rulings that were coming down. California had to lower their prison population. Um, they also, the courts told them, look, these guys don't have life without, they got 15 live, 25 live. You got to let them out. Now you got guys got 30, 35, 40 years in prison. Guys that should have got out in 10 or 15 years, you know, so. Did that give you hope seeing these guys start to get out? Yeah, so <clears throat> I told myself, look, man, I'm going to go to board in a year. I schedule board hearing. They're probably going to give me a five-year denial. And, you know, all these guys told on me, they don't give a shit about me. The people that cared about me were no longer, I had a few guys in Soledad with me that I knew for years were friends, but most of my friends were gone. Um, my family on the streets who cares about me and my friends that care about me are on the streets now or they're in out-of-state out prisons, whatever. I just decided I was going to turn that five-year denial into uh, a parole date. And so I went to board. I had a real uh, uh, jerkwad parole board member. He just read me a riot act. Like I was just a major mastermind criminal. And yeah. I threatened the safety and security of the prison by smuggling tobacco. You know, it was just a couple hours of getting reamed out by this guy. And I just bit my tongue. In previous board hearings, I might have told them, uh, you know, to piss off, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I took it. I went back. I write, all right, I got a five-year denial. That means I'm going to go to board in five years. Um, when I was at Soledad, I got Valley Fever, um, <clears throat> which uh, I'm fortunate because it went dormant while it's still contained within my lung. It's a fungus. And it can eat its way out of your lung and you know, it can kill you, but um, it's a prehistoric fungus, um, coxie. Anyway, um, <clears throat> everyone that went to board and got a release date now, I'm questioning. And a lot of more younger guys, they figured it out, you know, and so I would ask them questions, ask them questions, ask them questions, you know. What do they ask you? What do you got to do, you know? And like, look, you just got to go in there and be straight, you know? And so I'm like, all right. I know I got to do this five-year denial, you know, so, um, you know, they opened Tracy up as a level two. I had been there previous. I liked it. They had a hobby shop, you know, all this stuff. So me and my friend Terry were like, hey, let's go back to Tracy. I'm like, all right, cool. Because they were looking for guys to go. So we go to Tracy and, uh, you know, they say you can never go back, right? And that's true. Hmm. Tracy had become predominantly a, a reception center. Uh, here I am, same mentality, you know, the the drugs, the I'm a tough guy, I got the keys from the fellas, all this kind of shit. I was just like, man, they ruined this prison too. There was no hobby, very limited program. Uh, <clears throat> and so there was a guy there named Russ, had the yard. He was a heroin addict. I would see him talking to captains by himself and the guy's like, hey, bro, you remember me from, uh, and I didn't remember him. But when someone rolls up on you and they say, hey, remember me, bro, we we're, 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 we're on Mars together, you know, whatever. And, and you don't remember them, that's a red flag, you know. They're trying to ingratiate themselves with you and you don't really know them. That's a red flag. So I got a job in the carpenter shop. 
And uh, and I had this guy that was working with me. He was from Long Beach, I think, South Bay, L.A. And he was younger, and he kind of he knew I'd been around and shit, and he would ask me questions about things that were going on in the yard. And I said, "Look, <clears throat> that dude's no good." Uh, he's like, "What do you mean?" I said, why is he in the day room talking to a captain by himself? Because he's a shot caller? That's bullshit. And there was a bunch of stuff going on, food strikes and all this other shit. Um, turns out this guy was in prison. He killed his own grandma. You know, and, uh, It was kind of way out. Um, and then some older guys that were with me had to put some of these guys in check. There were guys pushing a hard line, and after I left, turns out the guys pushing a hard line had sex offenses, you know, but they're the guy in the yard with their chest out trying to tell people what to do, you know. So we had to kind of uh, tell them, you know, fuck you guys, right? Some of us older cats. Um, but after I left, the shot caller guy, uh, you know, I told a few guys, yeah, that dude's no good, you know, and they're like, really? And they started kind of checking around. So what he was doing was he would go to the reception side and get money from people for tobacco and dope and then burn them. And then they get transferred out because they're going to prisons from the reception. And then they found out he was in there for killing his own grandma. And I kind of opened the door. <laughs> I kind of opened the door by letting, you know, like, hey, that dude, you know, just take a basic observation. You could tell the guy's no good. So they, uh, after I left, I heard they beat him up pretty bad. Uh, give him brain damage, I guess. They fucked the dude up pretty severely. Um, Sounds like you had it coming. Yeah, some guys from IE beat him, stomped him out pretty bad. I heard he broke his hand on the guy's face. Wow. Yeah, you know, it was... Uh... <clears throat> so because I had Valley Fever, they, they go, hey, you know, this is... Uh, the lawsuit that regulates the population of prison now in California was over medical. And so um, because I had Valley fever, they go, you have to go to a medical facility. So they sent me to CMC West in San Luis Obispo. <clears throat> and I, you know, I wasn't really happy about that because it's dorm living and I, I like living in a cell. Um, so I went to, uh, I went there and uh, they put me in dorm nine and I went to dorm yeah dorm nine was like the asshole dorm <laughs> for some reason I always go to the places I always end up in the asshole spot you know and uh you know there was uh a couple of 45 man dorms which is single bunks I live in a 90 man dorm double bunk and uh there's no way I could get to one of these 45 man dorms you know and uh, they just kept me in this shithole dorm. And after after having your, you know, being in cells for so many years, then going to a dorm, does that like? Is it hard to sleep and stuff? Is it is it disruptive to you? Yeah, for me it was because I have a hard time sleeping anyway. But uh, so I get to this place. It's it's an old. It, it, it used to be a fort. Then during World War II, they used it for a hospital for guys coming back from injured vet guys coming from the war now the national guard owns it and they rent it out they lease it out to the state for a prison you know so there's there's like trees on the yard grass baseball field you know i'm like this place looks pretty cool you know 
but it wasn't. <laughs> you got the term level two killers, you know, that's where it comes from. Uh, so you got guys that are level two that are lifers. I ran into my friend, Larry, he's a lifer. Um, we're just trying to like, okay, we're level two. Like you say, the mentality, I'm a level two. I'm going to die in prison. So, you know, even though I thought I might be able to get out, I still had the mentality, like, you know, I probably won't get out. And then you got guys doing set terms, like two years, four years, five years. And they're the ones politicking hard, making life miserable. Just like, and that's pretty much the way it is everywhere. Guys that have set terms, they make life hard for guys that don't that have life. They come up with all this bullshit uh, politics and, you know, guys like, yeah, my homeboy's so-and-so. I'm like, I don't give a fuck who your homeboy is. I'm, you know, that's kind of my mentality. So I'm living in a dorm. I remember one time there's this guy in debt and they, they you know, I've been there a minute. Um, I'm miserable. Uh, they come by like, yeah, we're taking a collection for so-and-so to pay his debt, you know, so they don't, you know, he's in debt. I'm standing in the doorway of the dorm and I go, hey, check this out. If you stab that guy, I'll pay his whole fucking debt. <laughs> and you're fucked up. You're fucked up, you know? <laughs> that's the way it, it's supposed to be, you know? Somebody owes money like that. They're putting all the white dudes in danger now of being in a riot or or worse you know and then uh you know there was a group of guys uh, one of them was like uh trying to run shit on the yard and uh um i went out told the youngster you know he's like gonna try to ally the whites with the, another group of people against another group of people like uh, he's trying to say that there were northerners and southerners there and so he's trying to say hey if the shit kicks off with them, we're going to back the Southerners. Well, I've been in riots with Southsiders. Them days are over. So I went out and told these youngsters, hey, look, man, that dude don't run the fucking yard. And I'm not, I'm not down with this. And they're like, yeah, we're not down with that shit either. I go, look, I got your back, but I'm not going to step up front. I go, you guys are young. And it was like five of them. I go, if you guys don't like what's going on, then you need to step up and let them know. I go, I'm not going to do it. I've been there, done that. It's your turn. But I got your back. <laughs> this guy's big, tall dude. So they go and tell him, hey, <clears throat> we're not with that shit. You don't run this fucking yard. You don't run us. And we're not with that shit. And that's not what's happening. And while they're telling him that, that guy, <laughs> that guy was looking at me like, yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> But uh, I was proud of them because they stood up and let them know, hey, you know, fuck you. We're not with your bullshit and you don't run us. And I let them know, you know, you guys are, you know, right on, you know. And uh, so that same dude they were trying to collect money for uh, borrowed a couple books of stamps from me. He owed one of my homeboys, Ricky, some money. <clears throat> and uh, I'm like, all right. So my homeboy, Ricky, he's in a, his dad's in a bike club and he's a biker. Um. And he's telling me, yeah, this fucking dude. And he's under the impression that, like, to beat someone up, he needs to ask permission from the shot caller. I go, hey, check this out, man. Uh, you're from San Diego. You're a biker. You don't need to ask nobody shit. You got a problem with that guy? Go fucking go fuck him up. 
you know, you don't need to ask nobody nothing. And so the next day, uh, shot caller goes, Hey man, did you tell Ricky, you know, that he, that, that I go, yeah. He goes, you know, bikers don't run nothing in prison. I go, yeah, cool. I got you. You know? <clears throat> and so a few days later, I was walking the track with, uh, two or three of my homeboys, you know, all younger guys. And, uh, and when I got there, I told them, look, man, and one of them just got out of the hole for doing a removal. They had him remove some guys, you know. I told him, look, we're from San Diego. These fucking guys don't tell us what to do. If one of these guys tries to tell you, you know, to, you got to put in some work, come and see me. Let me know. Because uh, we take care of our own shit. Fuck them dudes. And so uh, we're walking the track. And I see this dude that owes me money for stamps and he owes my homeboy some money. And I, and I start motherfucking him and I'm poking him in the forehead. <clears throat> I say, I want my shit or I'm going to kick your fucking teeth out and I'm going to take your shit. And <laughs> well, he's buying dope for all these guys. So we walk around, we're up at a table. Here comes shot caller. So my celly, my bunkie's from San Diego. He's kind of short. He grew up in the ghetto of San Diego. I mean, he's probably one of the only white guys in the neighborhood he grew up in. And he's kind of tough. He's a little guy, but he's he's tough. Um, and he goes, hey, bro, I want you to get out of prison. You're a homeboy. Uh, you got a fucking problem. I'll handle it. I said, nah, it's all good. He said, nah, that's the way it is. So, I, you know, I forgot about that. So here comes this guy walking up the street. Um, he just seen me threaten to kick his money bags teeth out and so he's worried about his getting high every day thing and he's walking up the street and he goes hey smiley you got a minute i go what's up and uh my little homeboy jumps out with his fists up he goes what do you want with my homeboy <laughs> and uh the guy's like whoa it's not like that no no it's, it's not like that so all that you know bikers don't run shit you know that was kind of he got an idea that you know we might not run shit, but we take care of our shit, you know what I mean? <laughs> and dude paid me and paid my my little homeboy. But and and then he ended up locking up about a month later, you know, because he was so far in debt he couldn't pay. I can't believe they were trying to pay his debt. That's just enabling. <clears throat> yeah, it enables him to just continue to go in debt, and that's what happened. He went in debt, went in debt, went in debt, and then he checked in. You know, and the guys he's buying dope for, they know eventually he's going to go. He can't pay. I mean, you owe thousands of dollars for drugs. I mean, how the fuck do you pay, right? <laughs> you pay by locking up. I mean, it's just, you know. <clears throat> so I've been there for a while. I spent a couple years on that yard. And so they have East Yard, which is cell living. You have a key to your own cell. Then they have the West Yard where I was on the dorms. And, uh. Dude, I'm fed up with prison. So East Yard had some questionable characters over there. So for white dudes, um, you're not supposed to go to the East Yard. Um, guys that would go from level three East Yard to level two, the white dudes would beat them down and remove them. So. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Coro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. 
And the energy balls are delicious. Oh, they're my favourite, the salted pistachio. Ooh. Um, can't wait to have this this morning. Let's see what this one tastes Cheers. like. Cheers. Mmm. <laughs> mmm. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Their bulk packaging allow them to offer their customers high quality products at a fair price. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. <clears throat> Even though it's a mainline yard, they say, oh, it's a bad yard, you're not supposed to go there, whatever. So they came out with this thing, the long-term offender program. Uh, for lifers, brand new program. It's on the East Yard. <clears throat> I'm like, all right, and they've just got single cells. Um, I'm like, all right. Uh, the board created this program, the parole board. So in other words, my mind is the parole board created this program for us to go to prior to going to board. So if they're gonna let you out, they probably want you to go through their program. Um, so I just said, hey, you know, fuck it. I'm going to go to that program and uh, I'm going to go to board. And if they don't let me out, I'll come back over here, go to some other pen and I'll deal with the fucking consequences, whatever, you know. Um, <clears throat> so I tell these guys, hey, I'm going to go to that program over there. You know, the tough guys, you know, while we're out doing dips or working out, you know, They're like, ah, come on, Holmes, you're not going over there. I go, yeah, I'm going to go take that program. I signed up for it. And then about a month later, I go, hey, I took the assessment. They come over, do an assessment, see if you're amenable to the program, whatever. <clears throat> and uh, I go, I took the assessment for that program. I'll probably be going over there pretty soon. Ah, bullshit, man. Come on, you're not going over there. I go, yeah, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to take that program. Uh, it's the only fucking way I'm going to get out of prison. And uh, this one guy goes, well, you know, my homeboy's uh, so-and-so, uh, let me let me get at him on the cell phone, you know, and he's in another prison, you know, big homie, whatever. See if it's okay for lifers to take that program. <clears throat> I go, I don't give a fuck. I'm going. <laughs> I don't care what you or your homies think. I'm going to go take that program. Uh, these are guys that are going home. These guys have no idea what it's like to have done 30-something years in prison. You know, they don't or go deal with that fucking parole board. They don't know. You know, they don't care. And so uh, another month goes by. I go, hey, I'm in the dorm. I go, hey, I'm packing my shit right now. And uh, I'm going to that program right now. I'm going over there right now. If you got something to say, you know, we can take it in the TV room. <laughs> oh, it's all good, bro. We know you're trying to get out of prison. Uh, it's all good. So I split and I went over to the program. And uh, about six months later, these other guys came over. I'm like, yeah, as soon as you left the yard, you were no good piece of shit. But to your face, it's all, hey, it's okay, you know. But as soon as you leave, I mean, that's prison, you know. I mean, uh, so I did that program. Uh, I did my T-shirt patterns. I got into my artwork there because they had a little cell hobby program. Uh, and I did this program. It took a couple years. Uh, basically, it was like anger management, substance abuse, you know. Shit like that. Family relations. They like five or six different programs, you know. And uh, I'm like, all right. You know, and I had a little, <clears throat> I had a job in the laundry, saved my money, buy art supplies. I was doing my artwork. 
going to this program. Uh, then I got a job in the yard, yard crew. My job is to go out and tell the cop, hey, I'm here today. See you later. Go back to my cell and do my artwork. Um, you know, you get a job where you don't have to uh, participate, right? Like when I was in San Quentin, I had that tobacco. I had a job to take the trash out of the building every night, and I would just give a couple youngsters a cigarette, and they would do my job. <laughs> you know? But uh, <clears throat> So I took this program, and, and you know, everyone in there is a lifer, has been in prison 20, 25, 30 years or more. Um, and it was kind of like uh, they got inmates there that are mentors in the program. They go through training. They would be counselors, but they can't call them counselors. They call them mentors, you know. Now, this Korean dude and this black dude, they're mentors in some of the programs. <clears throat> you know, after uh, I've gone through a couple of the steps in the programs, these groups, they're like, hey, we got your story. We got you. And so here's here's the here's the deal, you know. They lay out a scenario and they go, "This is your story." And I'm going, "All right," you know. So and they pretty had it pretty correct, you know. So I'm focusing on my story. I'm got I'm like, man, I'm going aboard. And I, I you know, the the level of stress when I was early years, all the madness, it was kind of the same kind of stress, but it wasn't, you know. Uh, it's, it, Am I going to go out and get killed the day on the yard kind of stress, but it was the same level of stress because it's like, what do I need to learn in this fucking program to go to that pro board and get out? I mean, it was pretty stressful. Um, so I was just uh, eating up the information as much as I could. Um, and I, you know, everyone that went to board and got a date or not, I was like, what'd they ask you? What'd they ask you about the program? What do you got to say? What, you know, and, and none of them had a definite answer, you know? It was like, you just got to go in there and try to be real. I'm like, all right. <clears throat> so I go through the program and, uh, you know, I'm getting ready to go to board. I got a lawyer. And uh, she goes, your board member is going to be Randy Grounds. And by the way, that's the same guy that let Mike Thompson out. Oh, um, shit. Yeah. And, uh, I go, man, I heard that dude's a straight asshole. They say that's like the worst board member there is. And she goes, oh, no. She knew him from working at Soledad. He was a warden at Soledad when I was there. Now he's on the pro board. She goes, hey, this guy was a Marine. He trained ultimate fighter. He's just like you guys. And uh, she goes, if your victim is a woman or a child or a cop, you're fucked, you know. But So I went to board and... Uh, Easiest board hearing I ever had, two hours, 15 minutes, boom, suitable for parole. And uh, I mean, it's the first time I had a parole board hearing where I felt like they actually listened to me, you know? And, you know, he, he didn't ask me one question about that program that I was in. <laughs> I won. But I know uh, they could tell that you participated in the program by the answers you gave to the questions they did ask, you know, they're pretty smart people, man. Um, <clears throat> you know, they see thousands of guys every year that are going in there trying to gain their freedom. And I'm sure out of those thousands of guys every year, they see a majority of them are bullshitters. You know, you acquire paperwork that says you participated in programs, but what did you learn from the program? You know, so that's their job is to figure out, you know, how you change, have you changed, you know, and 
uh, you know, they're, you're a threat assessment. They have to make a threat assessment. You know, what's your threat to society, you know? And if it's low, then, you know, you get out. So I got found suitable. How did that feel, man, after all those years? Uh, overwhelming, you know. It was overwhelming. Uh, you know, it brings you to tears. Uh, you know, all those years of all that shit, it was just about behind me. You know, and it's it's not a question of um, all the stupid shit I did while I was in prison, because now all of a sudden that's not a factor. Um, all the stuff they used to deny you parole, all the years they flip it and they used it to find you suitable. Like, you know, you did this. Oh, you did that. You know, it's just it's just weird. It's like two sides of the same coin. It, it just. uh <clears throat> what kept me in prison all them years was politics in California, you know, tough on crime, 34 prisons they built, prison guards union became the strongest union probably in the country. Um, their base pay is $70,000 a year. You know, that's what kept me in prison. Um, now the courts are pressuring them to let us out. I got a board member that was uh, decent and he came out of the boardroom and he says, uh, you know, he goes, I could have denied you parole over that tobacco. I said, I know. <clears throat> you know, I you know, I had tears rolling down my face. I was just overwhelmed, dude. I was just like, dude, I, you know, I went from a place that, you know, I'm going to die in prison. I came to prison when I was 17 years old. I'm going to die here. And that was, you know, no motorcycles, no wife, can't see the kids, can't see, you know, my mom's going to die without me being around, right? Dude, I'm going to go home. <laughs> and this guy's telling me, look, man, uh, don't take the easy way out again. And uh, I said, all right. And uh, <clears throat> he said, uh, guys like you are our biggest asset. And that kind of blew me away. Um, and I go, what do you mean? He goes, you got a story to tell, and I want you to tell it. And uh, he says, you know, when, when you're able to come back in these prisons, I'd like you to come back in here and tell your story to guys in here. <laughs> and uh, I was like, wow, you know, it, it really, <laughs> you know, thinking about that day now still uh, brings up some, because uh, here I am, you know, I went from, uh, you know, six by nine box to now, you know, we're homeowners. Do they let you out? What's the delay? How long does it take to get out once you get granted? So that's kind of interesting because <laughs> um, it wasn't without incident. Um, oh, shit. Yeah, so you have to wait. Uh, the These board members find you suitable. It goes for review in Sacramento, 120-day review for a full board panel. They took no action, and then it goes to the governor. He has... 30 days to take action or not. And then he took no action and, and I got out, but I had to wait 122 days, I think. So during the course of that, you know, um, my dad, the guy I thought was my father, um, Sam, I wrote him a letter. I didn't really have much contact with him my whole life, really. His sister, my aunt, uh, fantastic person, you know, but um, so I write him, I go, hey, I'm getting out of prison, you know. Um, uh, what a relief, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I go, you know, I don't want nothing from you. He's done real well in life financially, but I'm like, I'm not, I don't want nothing from you. Uh, just letting you know they're letting me out, you know. Just wrote him a, a letter. A couple of weeks later, I get called over to the sergeant's office, and the sergeant's like, hey, uh, 
you know this guy? I go, yeah. Is he a relative? I go, yeah, he's my dad. He just shook his head. He goes, I got an order here, no contact. Hey, what do you mean? He goes, well, we got, we read the letter you wrote him. So he sent the letter to the prison. That they go, you're not in trouble. It's been deemed normal contact, but you're to have no contact with this guy. No letters, no phone calls, no visit, nothing. You can't have any contact with this guy. And the sergeant's just shaking his head like, fuck, you know, how do you do this with your own son, right? Um, I go, oh, cool. I'm getting out. You know, fuck him. You know, he split when I was a year and a half old. So I go to the yard, and then uh, time goes by, uh, and the Friday pops up, and I get called to another yard. And I go over there. I get on the phone. It's like, I'm Captain So-and-so. I go, all right, what's up? He goes, I got a no-contact order here for this guy. I go, I already, I already been told about that. He goes, well, he contacted the warden now, and I'm doing the warden's review. <sighs> Same thing, no contact. My, it's all good, man, cool. So I go back to the yard and they call me in the counselor's office. They go, hey, uh, you're going home next Friday. I'm like, fuck, all right. <laughs> so this guy's like trying to stop me from getting out. Your own, oh. So I go to church that Sunday. I come back to the yard. Now, they let the gang members out of the hole, out of the shoe. And we got some guys in the yard that are hooked up, uh, Hispanic prison gang members, you know, and they're, Actually, pretty cool. Um, uh, me and one other dude were the only white dudes that he would talk to on the yard. Um, but you know, it, the yard was pretty cool. But now it's a it's a good yard for them. Uh, but things are kind of weird because the, there was tension amongst the white dudes are dope fiends, same shit. They owe the blacks money. They owe this, that, and the other. And then there's things going on with the Hispanics and blacks and. I'm not in the mix. I'm trying to get the fuck out of prison. I don't really care. I don't, uh, the white dudes there, most of them were, uh, you know, just dope fiends, you know, so I'm not really associating with them. So I come back to the yard and like, you have a key to your cell. They throw the bar, the doors are open, but you got a key to open your own door. So usually like when I go off the yard, I could come in and tell the cop, hey, you know, cause they know they run unlocks, you know, but if you're an older cat, you're cool. You know, they would let me go to my cell and just go in my cell, you know, instead of, because they know I'm not going to hang out on the tier and shit. So I go, hey, uh, and the guy goes, uh, wait for the unlock. I was like, wow, that's kind of weird. Usually they just let me go down the tier to my cell and, and, uh, keep going. I'm just changing battery. Yeah. So they would let me go down the tier to my cell and go in. So I thought it was strange, you know. And so I go out and walk a couple of laps on the yard and uh, a riot jumped off. <laughs> oh, no. And, uh, but, you know, like I'm standing on this sidewalk by one of my homeboys. And so the blacks and the whites get into it. Uh, away from me. These black dudes are just running right by me over to where this thing is. And... I'm like, what the fuck? I'm going home in five days, you know? Oh, shit. I stood there for a minute. Nobody put their hands on me. I mean, there's blacks by me. They're running by me. They see me. I'm obviously white, you know? I'm uh, six foot four and, you know, they don't put their hands on me. So I'm figuring, fuck it, you know? I just, they're like, everybody get down. I stood there for a few minutes. I said, fuck it. I just sat down, you know, my homeboy was by me. 
He sat down. I'm like, motherfucker, you know. Like I say, riots don't last long, but but then it jumped off in the buildings. Yelled out. One of the Hispanic dudes yelled out, "Hey, they jumped on a homie." Um, evidently, what they did was they tied the grill gate open. Uh, they were going up and down the tiers inside the buildings, uh, jumping on white dudes and Hispanics. Um, <clears throat> I think a couple guys got killed. A few guys got stabbed. And that and this prison that was like a rarity, you know. And man, you're this close. Well, this was a program prison. I remember prior to this, like. Um, my homeboy was in high desert and, and he knew a cop that was up there with him. And he goes, he goes, Hey, that cop told me, uh, best thing I could do would be to get the hell out of this prison. And I go, why? And he said, uh, they were going to flood it with gang bangers and fuck ups and turn it into a shithole. That was their intention. And, and uh, I'm like, yeah, right. And that's exactly what they did. They turned a programming prison into a shithole prison. Mm. So anyway, um, you know, that happened around 11 in the afternoon. And so B Yard's a whole, they have a bunch of walk-alone cages over there. They took everyone over there, everyone on the yard. If you're on the phone, everyone went to the cages. <clears throat> and it's like, we're locking everyone up that was on the yard. That means you're going to get a, a write-up. I'm like, fuck, dude, I'm going home in five days. If I go to Ad Seg, with a write-up for participating in a riot just because I was on the yard, they're going to take my release date. So I'm in a cage with about 15 white dudes. Everybody's separated by race. Um, I see a lieutenant walk by. I'm like, hey, lieutenant. He's like, what's up? I go, I tell him my story. I'm getting out in five days, just coming back from mass. You know, I wasn't involved. I was just trying to, you know, walk into the building, get to my pad. And he's like, yeah, yeah, cool, whatever. So I seen uh, two or three lieutenants, you know, I'm like, hey, boom, boom, boom. You know, tell the story. I wasn't involved. I was coming back from church. I'm going home five days. Like, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, whatever. And so uh, <clears throat> finally, this one lieutenant listened to my story. goes, you know, I'll check it out. Goes, Who else is with you? And I told him this guy here and that guy there. He's all right. And then here comes uh, this cop, Vivian. He was my dorm officer over on the West Yard, you know. I go, hey, V, check it out. Well, this lieutenant said, you know, you check this out. And, and, and he's like, uh, that lieutenant's pretty straight up. He said, uh, he'll check it out. He'll probably check it out. And then here come this other cop. He was my, my daytime uh, uh, officer in the dorm on the West Yard. And his whole family works in the prison system. You know, he's like nepotism. Man, I go, hey, man, what's up, man? And he's like, I'll check it out. I go, you know, can it kind of co-sign me with that? <laughs> he goes, we'll check it out. So I'm stressed, you know. I'm like, fuck, dude, all this time I got found suitable for pro. I'm going home in five days. And now, you know, if they take your date, you have to go back to board and try to oh. – you know, if you have a rider for participating in a ride, even though you were just sitting on the fucking track on a yard, they don't care. You got a ride up. So I'm stressed, man. And the whole day goes by. Now they're bringing in buses on the yard. They drive transportation buses on the yard right by where we're at. There's like three or four buses because Ad Seg is only so big. So they're taking guys to Corcoran, Delano, other prisons to put them in Ad Seg. I'm like, fuck, dude, I'm done, you know? 
it's a real sinking feeling, you know. And then about uh, three o'clock in the morning, we're out there all night. Here comes Vivian, my my dorm officer from the West Yard. He goes, hey, Smiley. I go, what's up? He goes, come here. I go, what's up? He goes, uh, who are them other guys? Get these two guys. The guys I said that were with me, he goes, get them two guys. Let's go. I go, where are we going? He goes, back to your, back to your cell. I was like, wow. <laughs> so me and them two guys, I told that lieutenant that were with me on the track, uh, we went back to our cells and everybody else went to Ad Sig. Holy shit. You know, I heard later most of them guys got out of Ed Sag and came back to the yard. But um, you know, then two guys were walking back that night. They're like, hey, Smiley, thanks. I go, it ain't no thing, you know. Um, because no, you know, people are afraid to stand up and say, hey, you know, and you know, talk to a cop, tell me hey, what's up, man. If you're not, you know, I mean, what do you, you know, what the fuck, man? <clears throat> that's a, you know, back in the day, guys would talk to cops. I mean, that's a misconception. Guys don't talk to that's how you manipulate staff. You gotta communicate with them, you know. So but um after I left prison, I heard that yard just turned into a dump, very limited access to the yard and, you know, just, they ruined it. So what was the day of your release? Like, um, it was pretty non, uh, eventful, you know, were you able to sleep the night before a little bit, a little bit, you know, I had all my stuff packed, you know, I had a lot of art supplies. I packed all that shit. Um, that's, I took artwork and art supplies home with me and my spoon, you have a plastic spoon in prison to carry everywhere. Um, and, uh, I went over to R and R with my shit and I sat there and these two cops, uh, Buffalo and Schmar, Schmar with East ride motorcycles. And they were my bosses on the yard crew, you know? And, and so like, they were the cops. Like if a white dude drove up, he needed his property. He needed something done. I could go to them and say, Hey, this dude, this dude, ooh, whoop, and they would help him get, take, they would give him what he had coming. You know, uh, they came over to R and R had big grins on their face. You know, they knew my story and shit. And they're like, good luck, you know? And, uh, I'm like, cool. You know? So I go out to the lobby. I'm like, man, I was like, I'm in a spot that's a restricted area. I'm going towards the gate. You know, I'm going, I'm in the visitor staff processing area. And the staff that work out there, uh, he pops up, you know, he's like, all right, man, you know, all smiles, cheerio kind of attitude. <laughs> it's like totally different from being inside, you know, it's just like their genuine personality pops up, right? He keys the gate and we, here we go, you know, and, and my mom picked me up and uh <clears throat> put my stuff in her van uh had they put you back in the street clothes you were arrested in no that's, that's <laughs> i think i was just wearing like shorts and you know yard shorts and a, and a t-shirt but uh so i got this paperwork i got a card they don't give you cash anymore they give you a debit card so i got to figure out how to get the money out i got my 200 bucks out of the machine uh you know i went to whole foods and had some like cheesy egg shit they call keys or whatever <laughs> pretty good um, so i call the parole office i got to go to los angeles because i, I i'm going 
in my mind, I'm going to this, the Francisco homes, uh, which is run by sister Teresa in Los Angeles. So I get down there. Um, I'm on the road. I call the parole office and while I was in prison, I seen guys parole when they were stuffed in the prisons full guys would parole on a, on a certain, you got to report within 24 hours and they would get parole violated, come back to prison cause they didn't report. Mm. Right. And, uh, so I'm like, you know, I got to report within 24 hours, the parole officer. So I call, I go, do I got to be there by what time? She's, and this black, she's, you better get your ass down here right now. Woo, woo, woo. You know, and I'm like, all right. So I'm like, hey, I got to get there by five o'clock. And so we haul ass. We get there like 445. And this black dude's in there. He's a parole officer. He goes, hey, check this out, dude. It's five o'clock. I live three hours from here. It's Friday. You're fucking my weekend up. I'm like, dude, I got a report within 24 hours. You know, I've seen guys get pro violated. And he goes, uh, let me see your paperwork. He goes, it says report with, uh, within, by the next working day. This is Friday. The next working day is Monday. <laughs> I'm like, all right, you know. So he pissed test me and all that shit. And, and, uh, we went and hit a Best Western Hotel off Slauson Boulevard. <laughs> you know, I'm from San Diego. I don't know L.A. I think there's a restaurant on the corner called Ozzy's. Uh, I'm eating pork chops. First time in years. Uh, some guys rolled up with some lowrider style Harleys. They call Vic Loves. You know, I'm like looking at bikes. I'm like, dude, this is... I'm trying to find a place, you know, I'm kind of a big dude. I go to this shopping, trying to find pants. All I got is skinny jeans and shit. And I'm like, what the fuck? You know? <laughs> but I was just uh, uh, being a spectator, you know, checking things out. And so um, Monday rolls around. Yeah, I spent a couple of days with my mom. Went swimming in the pool there at the hotel. It was pretty cool. <clears throat> my mom had sold her house and she was in the process of moving to Las Vegas at the time. And so uh, I go to the parole office. Uh, during that two days, though, I got a hold of this guy. I knew Steve. He was in the Francisco homes, older cat. He knew me when I was a kid. <clears throat> and uh, he's a Mexican dude. And uh, <clears throat> I go, hey, I want to get in Francisco homes. He goes, let me check it out. He's like, there's no beds. I'm like, you know, so I go to the parole office and she's like uh, tattooed, piercings. She's pretty cool, you know, butch haircut. She goes, I'm thinking the best place for you is Amity, one of these state-sponsored programs, you know. And I go, I'm thinking that's the last place I want to go because mm. they run them like community prisons, you know, transitional housing. She goes, well, where do you want to go? And I said, well, you know, I kind of, kind of truth, kind of bullshit. I'm like, you know, I want to go to the Francisco homes and I heard they have a couch and there's a bed opening up soon. And she goes, all right. So she calls sister Teresa and, you know, she hangs up the phone and she goes, all right. I go, all right, what? She goes, uh, head on over to the Francisco home. So um, some guy had left that day and opened up a bed, which is another, it's weird how things kind of work out, you know? And, uh, so I went to the Francisco homes. Um, it's in, it's in South central Los Angeles. Uh, the house, uh, they got a four or five houses. It's in the ghetto, you know, 
I lived uh, probably two blocks from where the Rodney King riot started. Um, a lot of guys don't even know what that is. Uh, but um, it's the ghetto. Uh, we're, like I said, we're the only whites in the neighborhood. Um, I loved it. The, uh, the difference between a state-sponsored program and the Francisco homes is like the rules. Like state-issued place, you can't have a cell phone for 30 days. Restrictions on where you can go. Um, you got to get a pass, you know, to go to the DMV to get an ID and you got to get a pass for this, that, and you got a reason to leave the facility. Francisco homes, there's none of that. The only rules are basically, you know, no drug use, no alcohol use on premises. Um, and you know, you got to live there. And so, uh, I was kind of still blown away, but, um, uh, you know, I, I was pretty well grounded. Um, you know, some of the stuff out in society I couldn't understand, like all the, uh, you know, the Antifa shit was just starting, all that kind of. What crap. year was this then? Uh, 2017. What about technology? Uh, well, you know, I had a cell phone in prison, so that wasn't that bad. But computers are still kind of iffy for me. I don't really understand computers all that well. I can use a phone. And so I, I go there and, and uh, Ed and some other guys, you know, they, they've been there. So the guys that have been there, they kind of coach you along. Uh, what I liked about the Francisco homes is they gave you enough freedom to make it or break it. You could break yourself or make it, you know. And so these guys take me in the car to the DMV. <clears throat> I had my birth certificate. I had my social security card because I knew I needed it, right? So I had my family get that. <clears throat> and then I had different forms of uh, where I was living, you know, a letter and then a letter from Sister Teresa and this different stuff. And uh, so they take me to the DMV and they go, all right, when you leave, you walk down this street and you get a bus, you go down here and you go there and they tell me how to get home. Right. And if you have any problems, call us. <laughs> so, <clears throat> you know, I, I made it home on my own. I, had, I got my ID. Uh, I had 10,000 bucks when I got out. Um, so I'm on the phone looking for a motorcycle, you know, Google used motorcycle, Harley Davidson, used motorcycle, Harley Davidson, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, one time I went to a job fair and I missed the turn and I'm way out Crenshaw somewhere. And I look and I'm seeing less and less white people and more and more people that look like, you know, they're smoking crack and, you know, so I go, I, I'm out of bounds. So I get off, I get off the bus. I got all my shit, you know, my resume and all this stuff in this little binder. And, and, you know, people are looking at me like, what's this dude doing on our hood? You know? So I, <laughs> I went to this Krispy Kreme and I go, Hey Ed, I think I'm in the, in the wrong. <laughs> he goes, Where you at? He goes, because, yeah, just go on that Krispy Kreme and stay there. I'll come get you. <laughs> so he came about me, you know. But that's how I learned to navigate around Los Angeles, you know, was taking the bus. Uh, I went down and got an EBT card. I told him I don't want no money, just food, you know. So I had food for a few months. And, um, you know, you meet people. I'm not afraid to say, hey, what's up? You know, I did notice, though, so, is it, like in the neighborhood, it's mostly blacks. And so I live in a spot like 
from here over is all black neighborhood, old school black neighborhood. And then from here over, it used to be a black neighborhood, but now it's Mexico, El Salvador. It's, people lose their homes, crack, drugs, you know, it's a ghetto. And then from here back, it's uh, Southside or Chicano, you know, Florencia. So I had a job for a while later on, and, and I'm telling these youngsters, these black kids I'm working with, uh, it's a job readiness program, you know, and, and they're like, man, you live in the worst fucking area in L.A. You know, what do you mean? You know, everybody's fighting for that spot. I live right on the border of all these. He goes, uh, they go, but you're white, man. They won't fuck with you. You're cool. <laughs> but uh, I'd be out walking laps at 10 o'clock at night around the block, talking to my old lady on the phone. Um, she lived in San Jose. I was comfortable. I, I, I liked it. I knew where I was at. I asked this one dude, uh, what's it like living in the ghetto, you know? And he goes, it's just like prison. I go, what do you mean? He goes, if you want some, they'll give you more than you can handle. And if you don't, they won't fuck with you. And uh, I was cool, you know? Um, So I'm looking for a motorcycle, right? And I see this ad. <clears throat> you know, I'm on a little it's, uh, cell phone, you know, at this motorcycle, they, they want a really cheap price for a pretty new motorcycle. And I'm like, trying to contact him, trying to contact him. Then I get an email and, and it says, uh, uh, you know, this was our son's motorcycle. He died. Uh, we have bad memories. We just want to get rid of it to get rid of bad memories. Uh, the motorcycle stored at eBay's uh, storage facility in North Dakota. Um, we can have you look at it. And if you, you know, you got 10 day grace period, uh, we'll refund your money if you don't want it, blah, 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 blah. But I can't pin them down. Like, Hey, what's up on the phone or, you know, I'm, I'm fresh out of prison. I don't know shit, you know? So I, I call my wife. I go, Hey man, I can't figure this out. I want to get this bike, you know? And, and she goes, it's a scam. Oh, man. It's an ad right here. They want to sell this bike, you know? She goes, eBay doesn't have a storage facility, <laughs> you know? So she calls the number, and there's a beep. She goes, you hear that beep? I go, yeah. She goes, that's an international call on a Google line. And I go, all right. So she, she's like, hey, you know, uh, blah, blah, blah. And finally, she toys with a guy, and he's got a serious Nigerian accent, you know, and, and she goes, uh, you know, eBay doesn't have a storage facility. They, they're located in the Bay Area, blah, blah, blah. The, the guy hung up. She goes, it's a scam. So that was my first experience mm. with uh, with scams, you know. Um, <clears throat> but I did end up getting a motorcycle 29 days after I was out. I went and got a, I got a, a bike. And so now I'm mobile. I got my license. Um, How did that feel to be on a bike again? Uh, you know, it was a little... Uh, precarious at first but it felt great but you know you're riding around the streets of los angeles you know and and uh it's uh pretty dicey um there's a lot going I got, on i got a salvage title bike so it didn't have a license plate you have to get the bike inspected by the california highway patrol and then they'll they'll sign off and you can go get your license plate and i also i told the lady at the dmv this black lady's there i lean over hi how you doing you know i'm all happy to be out of prison cheerio what's up you know and she looks at me like, wow, you know, because I'm like, hi, how you doing? You know, and <laughs> I'm sure most of the people they meet are treat them like, you know, hey, you're fucking do your job, you state employee, you know, whatever. Everybody hates the DMV. And so uh, 
I go, I just want a motorcycle license. You know, I took the motorcycle rider safety class. I took the written motorcycle test and, and she's like, well, you know, you have to, you can't just get a motorcycle license. You have to take the test, you know, same written test. You got to take to get a car. You have to, I go, well, I don't want to drive a car. I just want to ride a motorcycle. It's like, it doesn't work like that, honey. I'm like, all right. You know, and she's looking for my previous license. And I go, you know, I've been gone for quite a while. And, and she, she looks up at me and she goes, that's all right. You're home now. <laughs> go, all right. Oh. So she gave me a temporary license and a temporary registration for my motorcycle. And then before I split, she goes, you know, my son just got 20 years in prison. So she knew I came from prison and, you know, she was a little bit of hi, how you doing goes a long way with people, you know? Um, so anyway, I was riding uh, the motorcycle. I'm cool. I'm just digging life. I went down this job readiness program. I'm taking this training and I'm riding home and I see a, I see an LAPD. I pass this LAPD. And there's another one coming this way at the stoplight. And so this guy sees that I don't have a license plate and he probably radioed the other guy. So he pulls me over. It's a white dude. And, uh, you know, I heard all the nightmare stories about LAPD. So he's like, you know, you don't have a license plate. I'm like, it's a salvage title motorcycle. I show him my temporary license. He goes, it's not in the system. You know, the guy just motherfucking me the whole, and he goes, what, is this your address? I go, yeah. He goes, why you live here? I go, cause that's where I live. And, uh, you know, I'm in the ghetto and, and he goes, yeah. When, and he goes, you on parole or something? I go, yeah. I live in transitional housing over there. He goes, what were you in prison for? I go, murder. <laughs> and he's like, you know hand on his gun <laughs> you know but uh the dude wrote me a ticket a fix-it ticket for not having a license plate 25 dollar fix-it ticket well my appointment for the chp was the very next day this cop didn't want to hear any of that shit you know so i go to chp and uh young hispanic cop comes out you know just like night and day man this guy's like hi how you doing i told him a story he goes dude you're legal you should fight that I go, yeah, but it's going to cost me a day of work. So I'm going to lose a whole day's pay to save 25 bucks. You know, so I paid that ticket. Uh, got my license plate and all that shit. And uh, started working, uh, sweeping sidewalks and pulling trash bags uh, for Chrysalis, the job readiness program. Then I got another part-time job working for uh, Pit Stop Monitor. And so I'm working in, the, in Skid Row in LA. I don't know if you've ever been there. Yeah, I've been there. Um, it's a shit hole. But you know, so they started the pit stop monitoring, you know, they have public bathrooms there, right? And evidently the gangs were using them for prostitution, selling drugs, charging people like five bucks to use the bathroom. Um, so they hired us, they started this in San Francisco and they, so they hired us to monitor the bathroom. <laughs> one person at a time, a female, what time they go in, what time they come out. And we had a cart with uh, you know, supplies. We kept them clean. We also gave like uh, hygiene kits to some of the homeless people. We had Narcon. So there we are. You know, I worked that job for a while, a few months. Um, and I remember this one black kid come up. He had a bicycle. And the, the 
well, some of them, their the door slides open and closes, and the door was locked. We couldn't get it open. I had to call the company. And this guy's like, man. He goes, uh, I want to use the bathroom. I go, there's one down there. He goes, yeah, but you guys aren't down there. I go, so what's up? He goes, if I go in there, they'll steal my bicycle. The guy, I mean, people were coming up to us after a while and being like, man, we're so glad you guys are here. <laughs> you know, if they could use the bathroom, these are homeless people, you know? Oh, like, shit. Especially chicks, you know? Chicks are, would use the bathroom. Guys would run up on them, abuse them. You know, it was, it was, they were just like, man, thank you guys. You guys are great, you know? Um, but I'm interacting with people that are the dregs of society, man. And, and I, I, I was having <laughs> <laughs> was having a good time actually some of them are pretty cool you know they kept me entertained in my eight hour shift and uh <laughs> it was it was pretty cool um it's a sad situation though because um now i see why and i had dudes roll up on me and they go hey smiley i'm like what's up i was in prison with you at corcoran or i was in prison with you over there several times this happened um so now I'm seeing why the culture in prison has changed so much. I'm seeing what drugs have done to society. Um, and, you know, when I quit using drugs, I also decided I wasn't going to sell drugs. You know, crime for money is, a, you know, commit a felony for profit, right? But um, now I'm just, uh, uh, I get reaffirmed in my decision not to fuck with drugs, sell it, use it, you know, because it just totally destroyed segments of society man it just it just ruined them um yeah i'm seeing it firsthand and now i realize why prison has become what it's become you know? uh, what about the youtube channel then How, what started that well um <clears throat> yeah i divorced my wife when i was in prison because um i, you know, I figured i was never getting out and they took our family visits and so we're not married, so we're communicating. And she's like, you know, I, I can't transfer my parole because she technically she's not a family member. So you can transfer your parole to a family member or for a job. So her dad has a machine shop up in Placerville, which is by Sacramento, Lake Tahoe area. And so he sent a job offer to me to be his apprentice. Uh, got my parole transferred. Uh, she got a job up in Placerville. Um, and so we're living on, her parents had a second house on their property. We lived there for a while. And, uh, you know, I had, I started my shirt company, you know, um, uh, Jesse James uh, gave me a shout out. Thank you uh, from West Coast Choppers. I messaged him and he, re he reposted my message along with one of his own. <laughs> Uh, give me a shout out and telling people to check me out. And it was a trip because I sold like everything I had in like two weeks because of that. So that was a, a great bump. And then, so somebody that started following me says, Hey man, you should check out, uh, uh, lockdown 23 and one Josh death. I bring, you know, <laughs> like, well, what's that all about? You know? And it's like, he interviews guys who've been in prison. So I'm like, all right. You know, and I messaged him. I went on his channel, did an interview. I got pretty good response. And then um, I got people saying, hey, you know, you should start your own channel. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I didn't, and I didn't know where it would go, you know, um, 
it's been almost three years now. Um, so I just decided, you know, that board member had told me, you know, you, you know, you need to tell your story. And so I figured this would be a good place to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I got on there, I told my story from childhood all the way through, uh, getting off parole and, uh, develop, uh, you know, the hard intentions, uh, family, we call it. Uh, How does it feel to have that community? It's a trip, man. Um, uh, you know, I told my story and I also interviewed guys I was in prison with. They, they kind of, I did that for two reasons. I want their story to be heard. And it also, uh, kind of co-signs my story. They were in the joint with me and they could tell people we talk a little bit about each other and our interactions in prison. And, <clears throat> but, um, you know, it blows my mind because, um, I got my phone here. I just want to show you something. Uh, I got this, uh, guy. This is one person. Um, I get messages, bro, that are that just like, uh, this guy sends me this thing. I know you can't really see it, but it's a clip from, uh, it says, First Infantry Division Fighting in Fallujah, Iraq, 2004. And I did some artwork for this guy. He's a veteran. He was in heavy combat. He's got PTSD. Um, he had a dog, big mastiff. It was like his, you know, the dog died. And he's like, dude, I want to kill myself. And so I'm like talking with him. But he's like, uh, he sends me this clip from Fallujah. And he's like, I was in the shit. I cry a lot. I cry a lot. Sorry, sir. I want to just never wake up. I mean, dude. I <laughs> yeah. I got a big heart for veterans, you know, um, so I get a, I get guys like that and I talk with them and you know, I get guys that have been to prison, guys that are on, they're trying to kick drug habits. We've had guys come on. I go live every Wednesday night and I've had guys come on our channel. Like I want to quit using. They got clean on our channel by our community <laughs> talking with them. They come on every night. They say, Hey, Wednesday night's my weekly meetings. Guys been clean for almost a year and a half. Uh, I met people I've gone on bike rides with, um, you know, I had a guy call me that says, hey, you know, I'm, I'm fighting a case. He got in an altercation. Somebody died. He's out on bail. He's getting ready to go to prison. He's like, dude, I'm scared to death. I'm not a tough guy. I'm just a, you know, Joe Blow. And I talked with him for two, three hours, let him know what to expect and, and hopefully calm some of his fears, you know. Um, it's a big responsibility, man, I, you know. I'm just a regular dude, man. And people tell me, hey, your story helped me out. Your channel helps me. I'm just blown away. I, I, you know, it blows my mind. That's what people relate to because you're a regular dude. It's authentic. You've been through so much darkness. Yeah. And other people who are struggling, they want, because they can see how well you're doing now psychologically, they want a piece of that. They, they want it to rub off on them. Yeah, well... I mean, I had a lot of help, you know, I mean, those programs I went through helped me a great deal. I have a great wife. She supports me and some of my crazy ideas. Uh, you know, she's the one that uh, helps me with the channel and my website, uh, you know, so I have support there. So I, I would just, you know, don't be afraid to lean on people that are willing to help you and people, especially people that got love for you. you know? Um, and it's amazing. I, you know, I've, I got a new motorcycle. We bought a house out here in Arizona, and I, you know, life's good. 
it could always be better, but she always tells me, hey, she's like, hey, dummy, just sit in this for a minute and just sit in it and realize what's going on, you know, and just enjoy this moment, you know. Think about where you were and yeah. what, what you've become and where you are today. That's all you could do, isn't it? And that, that yardstick then, it, it just boosts you for life, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, I got guys that are close to me out here that I know in prison, and I'm in touch with a lot of guys that were in prison with me. They, they've done well out here as well. Good. You know, and I just, uh, every day is a blessing, man. You know? Definitely. Uh, I made some decisions in prison that got me on the right track. And I fought and, they, and when you start making decisions to go down a certain road, which is called recovery or getting your life on track, once you follow through with one decision, then you make another one. Another, it just keeps increasing, you know, and going the other way is the same way. You know, if you make a decision to go down that dark road, it gets darker and darker and darker every step of the way. And it happens quick, um, you know. It's the same way going towards the light, you know, it's, uh, it gets better and better. It doesn't happen quite as fast, but it does get better, you know. Man, it's so inspirational. It's, it's been an epic journey, Mitch. A huge thank you for spending this much time with us. And I'm, know, sure, I'm sure the viewers are as blown away as I am. And I'm going to, you know, all, all your links will be down there. Please go and subscribe. Yeah, you so, know, um, I do want to say something like, um, you had uh, Mike Thompson on here and, um, you know, he made a statement. Some people have asked me about like, uh, like, like he testified against some guys supposedly that killed some kids and their mom and shit. Right. Um, and he says, you know, like if you got a problem with me testifying against him, then that means you're for, you're all for, uh, guys killing kids. And that's kind of bullshit. Um, uh, my thing is, uh, you know, the, it says you should not bear false witness, you know? So, um, uh, you know, he testified, uh, with a manufactured, uh, testimony. He was, um, if you check the timeline on some of the things that, that he says, he exaggerates his authority as, you know, shot caller. Uh, uh, the guy was in on the main line at Tracy for about three years. Um, then he went to Folsom. He was in the shoe. Uh, as a gang member, supposedly, right, for about, what, four years. Um, he dropped out of that prison gang in 1983, uh, early 84, late 83, maybe. Um, <clears throat> that's only about seven or eight years uh, of, of active time in prison. So, yeah, he did 45 years in prison. But, um, you know, I have a friend that did 45 years in prison also. Um, and, and it wasn't a gang member, um, but um, so that means he did uh, almost 40 years, like 38 years as a PC in a protected housing. <clears throat> a lot of that was in a unit. <clears throat> I remember in Corcoran, my building officer said, you know, there's only 25 guys to get to work in that unit. And he goes, and I'm not one of them. And he laughed. So he was in a special unit. Then he was in Mule Creek. PC'd up. So any information that that guy has um, after 1983, it's it's hearsay. And the testimony that he used against the people that he testified against in that case he's talking about with the kids, it's hearsay. He was never around that guy. I don't have a problem with 
<clears throat> nobody likes people that kill kids, nobody. And if that guy did that, you know, um, and he knew about it as a shot caller, why didn't he, why didn't he have him at whack? That's a prime candidate for somebody to make their bones that wants to become a, a member of a prison gang. Somebody that kills a kid, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a bone making material right there. Why didn't he have that dude whack when he was all for his criminal gang activity? He didn't know nothing about it until he dropped out, staff coached him along. <clears throat> Trust me, uh, uh, law enforcement, especially district attorneys, attorney generals, guys that want to get convictions, they got no problem coaching witnesses. Uh, I read a, uh, I read an article um, where he testified against some former members of his gang and the warden of the prison he was in said that he's a, <clears throat> he likes to control people, he's a manipulator, and basically he's full of shit and he reached out to every law enforcement agency imaginable willing to testify against people. I mean, they read the mail that goes out of the prison. When you mail a letter in California prison, they read it before it goes out. So they know. <clears throat> um, you know, he, he, uh, he benefited off the backs of other people by manufacturing um, testimony against them. So I, that's my problem. I don't have a problem with, um, well, I got a problem with guys who kill kids. I do. Um, and for him to come on here and say, you know, if you disagree with me, then obviously you're all for it. And also, um, you know, like I said, the guys he mentioned that he says they're in motorcycle clubs and, and they were had dual membership in the prison gang. That's bullshit. That you're either one or the other. And so people say, you know, Mike seems like he's very intelligent. Well, you know, he, he's books, he's book smart. He's read a lot of books. Um, he learned a lot of big words, but he uses his intelligence uh, to manipulate people and for his own benefit. And I don't know. I think if you're a smart guy, you should use what you know for the benefit of yourself and others, not just for your own bones, you know? Um, the bottom line was uh, <clears throat> he was in a hat with somebody. Uh, he was going to probably get whacked. And so he quit and told um, if he was all against uh, somebody getting out of prison and killing somebody's dad, that's what he said. That's why he quit um, because they were going to get it. They were going to send somebody to kill some guy's dad who dropped out. Why didn't he tell staff before the guy got out and killed the guy's dad? If he was all against it, why didn't he stop it from happening by telling the fucking authorities that it was going to happen? You know, I just got issue with it, man. Guy went from being a predator, preying on his own people to uh, being the complete end of the spectrum, you know, an informant who ratted on his friends. So that's my issue. Yeah, he said a few things, didn't he, on one of the podcasts, and he, he knew you was going to do a reply. So I'm sure he'll watch this and, and have something to say, but... He, he did offer to go on uh have a discussion with you. Well, I think you previously said that's something you didn't want to do. No, nah, I, I got no, you know, I, you know, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm friends with people that knew that guy in different places and, you know, they, they're all, we're all on the same page. You guys, you know, 
and you know if somebody listens to his shit and and they benefit from it whatever i mean you know people can believe what they want to believe but people that were in prison during that time they they know what's going on and you know i i don't know all right well let's let's end it on a positive note then of your art is available for people is it mitch uh yeah i have some stuff available you know we just moved so we're still we're kind of regrouping but um i sell prints i sell t-shirts this is uh you know, one of my shirts, uh, we got a website, hardintentions.com. And, I, you know, I do paintings for people. Like I did a painting of that guy's dog uh, uh, for him. I I have another guy who wants me to do a painting of his dog. A guy was involved with a dog program at Lancaster Prison. He was uh, participating. At California prisons now, they have dog programs. I don't know if you're familiar with them. But, uh, Wild man. You know, my best friend from childhood who died last year, he said his best time in Arizona Department of Corrections was when he was in the dog program. He had a dog living with him. Yeah. Made, he did yeah. a video about it. Yeah, so this guy, I'm going to do a painting of his dog that died. Uh, he was uh, instrumental in helping get the dog program going at Lancaster Prison. So, you know, I do paintings for people. Um, you know, I tattoo a little bit and I sell shirts. And, and do you ship that stuff to England? Sure. We got guys over there. We got a fire department over there in London that watches my channel. <laughs> They've got shirts and I, I send stuff. Uh, I've sent stuff to Russia, France, England, Ireland, uh, South America, a couple of places. Yeah, we'll, if they pay the postage, we'll ship it. I sent oh. a guy a hoodie to Dubai and he paid more for I think he paid $70 shipping to go. Yeah. And what other socials are you on other than YouTube? What's that? What other social media can people follow you on other than YouTube? Uh, on Instagram, Mitch, uh, Mitch Smiley 790 on Instagram. Uh, you know, I got a, I think I have a TikTok thing. My wife posts videos once in a while, but uh, mostly, mostly YouTube, you know. Um, yeah, I'm available. You know, uh, I'm just a regular guy, man. Uh, you know, I'm off parole. Um, you know, and, and when I got out of prison, I tried to leave all that bullshit back there and, uh, it's behind me and it, I'm moving forward in life and yeah, I'm, I'm available if people want to chat or people want some artwork done or whatever. I'm here. Uh, all right. Fantastic. So all of Mitch's links will be in the description box below this video. Please follow through and, uh, at the very least, subscribe to his channel. It's free. There's loads more content there, loads more stories. He interviews people, loads more details. It's endlessly fascinating. There's a lot to watch. And huge thank you to you, man, for just spending this much time with us and bringing we this to the... Every, uh, we go live every Wednesday. It's been a pleasure. Um, you're, uh, you know, you've got a massive following, man. You have a pretty interesting channel. Uh, yeah, and not just prison. You have, you know pretty cool yeah we have everything from ufos to dominatrixes <laughs> yeah the ufo thing i used to watch uh, i used to watch Asian aliens when i was in prison it's pretty interesting i used to listen to coast to coast oh yeah me too art I'm bell a... art bell i was listening to my little coast to coast i'm a little have a little headset on in sheriff joe's jail got me through many a night coast to coast you ever listen to the um to the ones with father malachi martin Oh God, that does sound familiar. He was uh he helped make the movie The Exorcist and he, he was an exorcist in the Vatican for like seven years. Yeah. He stood and went on this big, you know, he 
that's pretty interesting. If you get old uh, issues of uh, episodes of Art Bell with Father Malachi Martin, it's pretty interesting. I'll have to look some of that up. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end the recording. One sec. So if you enjoy true crime books, Gadfly Press is proud to announce the publication of Son of the Cali Cartel. You may have seen the Cali Cartel as represented on Narcos. A lot of that was BS. William lays it down in this book, what actually happened. The Cali Cartel, they took over from Pablo Escobar. They were the biggest cartel in the world, dealing billions and billions per year, US dollars. And the four heads out of the two most important ones were Miguel, which was William's dad, and his brother, Gilberto. When Miguel went to prison and Gilberto went to prison, William was running the cartel. Could you imagine running a multi-billion dollar cartel? And the DEA, war on drugs, they made them public enemy number one. William got shot up in an assassination attempt in a restaurant. The book starts out with that story. His mates got murdered and he just barely made it out alive. So if you want to check it out, it's available worldwide on Amazon as an ebook audiobook and paperback and the link is in the description box below this video cheers enjoy the podcast